You're listening to Key Conversations for Leaders. This is episode number 36. Welcome everybody. In today's episode, we'll be discussing how to lead yourself and lead others with Greg Vanarek. In this episode, we'll be talking about how values and vision can backfire if done incorrectly, the key ingredient to driving customer value, how to be a life entrepreneur, and developing organizational flow, and much, much more. Leadership is about vision. It's about creating a vision and sharing that vision with others in a way that inspires them to walk with you towards its fulfillment. Along the way, leaders encourage, motivate, guide, and even challenge people to bring their best each and every day. And it's all done through conversations. That's what the show is about. Better conversations for better leaders. Hey everyone, and welcome to Key Conversations for Leaders. I'm your host, John Ryan, and today we have a very special guest, Greg Vanarek. Greg is a leadership developer, executive, and award-winning author delivering training, speaking, coaching, consulting on leadership, life, and work design. Greg currently runs Greg Vanarek LLC, a training and development venture, and was previously a tech exec at K-12 Incorporated, now a market leader with a billion in sales. Greg is a co-author of three influential books, books including Life Entrepreneurs, a triple crown leadership and his writing has appeared in or been reviewed by Fast Company, Business Week, New York Times, Entrepreneur, Harvard Business Blogs, among many others. He is a graduate of both Yale and the London School of Economics and has a TEDx talk called Discover Mode, Find Your Quest. And today we're very fortunate to have him here on our show. Welcome to the show, Greg. Thanks for being here. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the work that you do and looking forward to our conversation. Me too. And I, I thank you for the work that you're doing as well. And and thank you again for coming on the show. I, I want to begin by inquiring a little bit about, you know, Triple Crown leadership. You know, what drew you to that specific theme? Yeah, so Triple Crown Leadership is a book and also a multi-year project that I did with my father, Bob. So he was my co-author on this book. And he's been on a leadership quest his entire career. He was in uh the army and startups initially, but then big business and then turnarounds. And then with his influence on my life and others, I've been on a leadership quest that's been more startup focused and work across sectors in business, nonprofits and governments. And so I got um, inspired to think about my life and work and the opportunities to influence people through leadership. So we decided to look for um, you know, great leadership. How can we really get people operating at their best? And we ended up finding through all this research on the world's most admired companies, sustainable companies, innovative companies, uh, three things that we wanted that were kind of we wanted to drive for. And it was excellent, ethical, and enduring. And so those were kind of the the quest, the ultimate aims of leadership, right? And through our interviews and our research. And we were looking for a metaphor for how to describe the three E's that I just mentioned. And we're having conversations with people. You know, it was like a hat trick. It was trio, troika. And somebody said, what about the triple crown of thoroughbred horse racing? And we said, oh my God, that's perfect. And we really dug into the whole... Um, history of horse racing too, uh, and ended up having fun with that metaphor. But it goes back to ultimately triple crown leadership. What kind of leadership does it take to build an organization that is one, excellent, two, ethical, and three, enduring? And then the real theme that emerged from this project, John, was 
what is your leadership quest? You know, so for us, that seems like a really worthy quest to raise our sights about what we can do with our leadership. But what is your quest? And what fits for you, you know, with your purpose and your values? And by the way, I guess the last thing I'll say about it is we don't view leadership as about title, position, authority. You know, leadership is something anyone can do if they choose. And so it's very much about leading from below, leading from above, leading sideways and creating a culture of leadership. And so it's about changing your mindset about what you can do with your life and work. And that's the quest. I love it. So that ties directly into your TEDx, right? Discover mode and and find your quest. And you clearly have found your quest and in your dad was involved. That's got to be a really exciting thing. Did you when did your relationship on on this level with your father, if you don't want me to ask on a personal level, like when did you guys start talking about leadership? Did that grow up from when you were a kid as well? Uh, yeah, it, it's really fun to reflect back. And so my dad had these really high powered CEO jobs after working his way up. And um, he became disillusioned with business leadership early on in his career, seeing poor examples. And, and for example, just this kind of mercenary view of leadership, of sort of treating people to extract you know, value from them and you know, firing you know, this, the whole like M&A and private equity and some, some models. And he said, whoa, is this what I want to do? You know, and, and then he came across servant leadership, the work of Robert Greenleaf. And it was just an absolute mind flip for him to think about. Instead of thinking about a leader at the top who tells people what to do and has the status, to say, no, the leader is at the bottom serving everybody in the organization so that they can add value to customers and the society. And, and so he, he engaged in this. And so when, when my brother and I were growing up, my dad would invite us to the company picnic or we'd go into the office to meet him. And, and he had a really tough schedule and tense turnarounds. But we're kind of picking this up. And early in those years, I was a little bit cynical about business and I was more interested in you know, nonprofit and government. But then I came around to um, how leadership can be about inside first. This goes back to an organization and it can start with purpose and values. And you can really you know, add value to people's lives through business or through nonprofit or through government. And they're all important. And I'm actually interested in, in working across the sectors and having business have more impact and having nonprofits be more like business with innovation and these kinds of things. So there's a lot of potential there. Well, it, it sounds like all of those experiences that you've had and your dad had really came together to form that triple crown, you know, ideology, starting from the inside, being the servant leader, and then the goals and everything else comes and flows from that vision and values that you have. You know, one of the things I know that you you talk about in your books and is important to you is is social uh, considerations as well as sustainability, which sounds like that ethics and the en endurance right there, what can leaders really expect right now? What are they thinking around like social change, social responsibility, and, and long-term sustainability? Yeah. When I was in business school, one of the first courses was about business and society. And that's actually really important and interesting um, because a lot of people view business as separate from society. And you kind of view Business is a game that you're supposed to play that where you're supposed to maximize profits and growth and to maximize shareholder value. And this is actually kind of 
You mentioned the word ideology. This is what business schools have been teaching for decades. And so it's, it's actually been very influential as the way a lot of leaders view their role. But of course, this is only one point of view about what business is fundamentally. Some people think it's obvious, it's that simple, period, there's no discussion. But there are competing worldviews about it. And so the whole leading multiple stakeholders is another competing theory where it's, it's not just about shareholders who are, of course, important if they're investing and taking a risk and you know, funding you know, with capital, et cetera. But what about your employees? and their experience and their opportunities to develop and grow and be rewarded and recognized and have fun and feel part of a team or a community. What about your customers? Are you adding value, solving problems, are you innovating? What about your partners, your suppliers, and are you helping them? And what about your communities? Are you engaged locally with the schools or volunteering? And what about the world and climate and, and larger things? And so business, of course, is one piece of these systems. And I think, you know, right now we're talking during a pandemic, you know, and uh, with all of the the health strains, but the financial strains and the mental health strains come with it. And it really shows, you know, John Kabat-Zinn said that the moment is the curriculum. And I think one of the things that I've seen clearer than ever is you see how dependent and interdependent we are as systems and that business can operate, you know, well without, government and regulation and nonprofits and societies and families and hospitals and schools, you know, with a lot of parents supporting their kids with remote learning. So, so it's all connected. And, and so if you're leading people today, you know, they're going to be asking you about particularly younger generations about sustainability questions. What are we doing? Is it responsible? They're going to be asking us about ethical and about impact or, you know, are we engaging? And so there's a lot of people who are looking for some kind of higher purpose. And our customers are gonna be asking for that too. And they're willing to pay a premium if we're doing that well and communicating it, but they're also willing to walk away if they see you being irresponsible or not sufficiently woke, not sufficiently dialed in to these opportunities. Uh, and and the, you know, it's also a business opportunity if you do this well, right? You can add financial value and social impact and get that get that uh, engine revving. Uh, but, but it's not obvious. It doesn't happen automatically. And it sounds like they're no longer mutually exclusive, where you have to focus on the financial stakeholder returns when you can actually think about really, uh, sorry, shareholder returns versus stakeholder returns, that you're really thinking about the impact on everyone locally and, and can even be globally in some contexts as well. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think you, you know, the more you actually think about adding value to the different stakeholders, the more powerful the overall business model can become because it gives you uh, room and margin, right? But, it, but it's a long-term play. You know, if, if you're talking about just this quarter or this month, I mean, clearly cut, cut, cut costs, you know, drive sales, you know, over, you know, over promise, you know, uh, you know, don't meet the expectations that you set out with your sales team and these kinds of things under deliver. But that's going to come back to bite you in the medium and the long term because you're going to be reducing trust. You're going to be losing people. You have to you know, rehire and retrain. And so um, it takes you into this tension between the short term and the long term. Uh, but, but you also have to get away from the thinking of trade offs. It's either this or this. 
you know, that's like the simplistic way to view it, view it. And often with innovation, we can do both. We can sort of change the frame and, uh, and have the short-term and the long-term, have the excellent and the ethical. So to do that, then you have to be clear on your values of what's important to you as an organization, who you are concerned about, and then challenge those constraints under which you're operating. Otherwise, you're going to stay in the same lane and not really going to redefine the game that you're playing. That's right. And so going back to this metaphor of triple crown leadership, what kind of leader leadership does it take to build something that's excellent, ethical and enduring? We developed from all that research and our own experience, and we did interviews with 61 organizations in 11 countries, Google, Spotify, you know, also, you know, all sorts of uh, Cisco, GE, you know, big, small, high-tech, low-tech, business, nonprofit. We developed five advanced leadership practices for how to do that. And one of the key ones is what we call the colors. And it's a horse racing metaphor for purpose, values, and vision. And, and so, you know, I think a lot of companies these days have a mission statement or a vision statement, but they do it very poorly. You know, they're very, you know, it's, it's, it's a paper exercise and they don't live up to it. And so if, if you do it that way, it's actually very dangerous because the people in your organization are going to see, we just wasted, you know, weekends at retreats, taught wordsmithing, you know, vision statements and values and here I see my manager is time after time not living up to it and nobody is pushing back. And so it was all, and so they become very cynical. And so I think it's dangerous to even do that stuff unless you're committed to doing it really well. And, and the way to do it really well is to do it collaboratively, is to elicit shared purpose, shared values, shared vision. And, and that's another thing, by the way, a lot of people confuse these terms and they're not clear. Uh, and then you have to inculcate it into the culture of the whole enterprise, the division, your team, and connect people's personal purpose, values, and vision with the organization. And you have to communicate it over and over, and you have to have accountability mechanisms. And that's where we get into the fifth practice of aligning around these things. It starts with purpose, values, and vision, but then you have to align to it. Does where where does the idea of a culture of character come into play? And can you talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah. So to step back, um, a lot of people maybe don't reflect on how important character is in leadership, in life. If you think about families or anything, if you're involved in a school committee or PTO, character is fundamental to what people look for in a parent, in a friend, in a colleague, it, certainly in a leader. And, and now in this world where we've got such a breakdown of trust, you know, where you see so many people saying one thing, doing another, you know, you know over-promising, under-delivering, under you know, not living up to or their actions, you know, don't align. And so, you know, Warren Bennis, the leadership guru who wrote On Becoming a Leader, he said, integrity is the most essential aspect of leadership all the studies and stuff, stuff that he did. Warren Buffett talks about, you know, he looks for intelligence. He looks for integrity. He looks for energy. But he says, if you don't have integrity, the other two get you in trouble. And so first pausing on, you know, the three E's, excellent, ethical, enduring. Ethics is an imperative. We must meet our ethical obligations. 
And, and so a lot of organizations and leaders aren't committed to that explicitly, right? And so that's that's the character piece. But then you want to build to your question, you want to build a culture of that. And so you want to, you know, own the shared values and then again, um, actually use them in decision-making. And so, so where it gets very tactical, you know, Zappos, for example, is an interesting example. So this is an online, it was an online shoe retailer. It was uh, a startup that was uh, grew to a billion, was you know, acquired by Amazon, and it's, it's grown to other things. They, when they're doing performance reviews, 50% of the review is how did you do in your performance, your work performance, whatever it is, customer service, you know, quality indicators, revenue growth, whatever. The other 50% is what did you do to uphold our company values and, uh, and to make contributions to our company culture? And, and so then if it's 50% of your review, you know, it's got teeth, right? People like, it's not just something on the wall. I'm going to have to go answer for this every quarter when I meet with my manager. We're going to have conversations about specifically what did I do? I have to make a case here and we have to improve this over time. So you actually want to actualize it. Uh, and, and when you do that, it's very powerful because people see, wow, we, we share values. We're part of a family that's working towards business goals, but also we have shared values that really connect us. That, that makes some, so much sense. And I love that example of Zappos and, and the 50-50 split in there. Because I think what I hear you saying is that when if you're there's almost like a uh, beginning of that journey, the hero's journey you're about to go on, hey, this is going to be, a, it has to be a serious deal. Might as well not even do it if we're not going to uphold that. Because the two deficits are that if you as a manager are not upholding the values, well, that reduces the integrity and, and creates cynicism, like you said. But it also, as an organization, reduces the integrity overall, because now we're not living by our stated purpose. So it can't just be an exercise and uh, checking off a box has to be a commitment. And how do you operationalize that? Sounds like the feedback reviews, uh, hopefully more than once a year, of course, are um, actually one way to do that. Yeah, I think that's right. And just a couple of other quick things. I mean, one of the good ways that we've seen where companies and organizations actualize this is they don't just have a word for their values. They have a word with an explanation that they, you know, they really describe what specifically they mean by it. And then you can go further and say, what are the behaviors? And you've got bullet points of like three to five behaviors for every value. And so then when you go into review, you're not just talking about integrity. You're not just in the abstract or you're not just talking about quality. You're saying, okay, bullet point one, you know, what did you do to uphold the commitments you made to customers? Okay, bullet point number two. And so it becomes much, gives it much more specificity and concreteness. Um, and the other thing I'll say is that, you know, Back to the trust piece, a lot of people view the ethical stuff as like, oh, well, that sounds nice and abstract and philosophical, but you know, this is the real world, John. You know, we gotta we gotta meet our numbers, and I'm under pressure. And that's true, but if you don't have the ethical imperative, you literally erode your ability to drive business value and performance over time. So it literally will work against your, you know, some of the imperatives that you have in terms of your results imperatives, because people will leave, customers will, you know, not trust you with their business anymore, suppliers won't work with you anymore. And so, but if you do it well, you build a trust bank account that actually shows up in your bottom line, as well as in this, in the experience that customers and employees have 
of affiliating with you. I, I think that's a really good point, especially in today's you know digital age where a customer experience goes online and it's not one to one anymore. It's one to many, and that reputation is everything. All we really have is our values and our words. I really loved your point about operationalizing it in terms of like here's the value of integrity. Well, okay, well, what does that mean? Here's a description. How, what does that look like? And looking at it in every sense of the word so that there's no ambiguity there. Because if you and I are in a meeting, you have a word, a definition in your mind about what integrity is, and I have a definition, and they're probably very, very different. Does this concept of you know operationalizing, actualizing what it looks like to have integrity and the values as an example, does it also come into hiring? I know you talk about the heart characteristics. And when they're hiring, are, are they asking people to you know, describe a time when you fulfill these values or can they allow that person to grow into that role? Yeah, hiring is really critical. And back to our five advanced leadership practice, practices for the Triple Crown, uh, it's the first one starts with you know, what we call head and heart. And this is where a lot of leaders make mistakes. Typically what we do in hiring, if you think about an interview, you get the resume, and you're asking questions about their work experiences, uh, their knowledge, their skills. You know, where did you go to school? What did you study? You know, what have you done tactically to add value? And those are, of course, important, your competence. Uh, but, it, but the problem is it doesn't stop there. And, uh, and Google has done a ton of research on this of what makes you – know, at, at Google, you've got to be really smart to work there. It's incredibly difficult to, to get hired at Google. In terms of the selectivity, it's way beyond the selectivity of Harvard University and, and others in terms of the actual numbers. And they figured out that the people who really thrive and add value at Google versus sort of the normal Googlers, it's really at the bottom of the resume that very few people ask about, which is those interests and skills and those personal aspects of, did you do you know, the Peace Corps? Have you traveled around the world? Did you do you know, some kind of you know, neighborhood Olympics when you were a kid? And that's the heart piece. And so what people fail to um, address enough, you want the head piece too, but the heart piece starts with character, like we were just talking about, right? Because the trust factor, you know, um, you're talking about courage. Are people willing to step up and, and have the tough conversations? Uh, you're talking about emotional intelligence. You're talking about their resilience in a setback. You're talking about their hunger to do great work, their drive, you know. And so those heart characteristics, we want to hire for them in addition to the head stuff, but we also want to develop them. You can develop emotional intelligence. You can develop ethical prowess and you want to reward people for the heart stuff too and not just for, did I meet my numbers this quarter, right? And if you do that, again, it starts to inculcate the shared values and the culture of character as well as results that we were talking about earlier. When I, when I hear you mention those words, the heart characteristics there, you know, as leaders, business owners, uh, executives, you know, we're the stewards of the organizations that we're involved with. Um, at the same time, the idea of resilience, it connects back to entrepreneurialism. And can you talk about a little bit about the life entrepreneurship ideas that you have from from the, the earlier book as well. I know we talked about triple crown leadership, but bring in some of those concepts and tell us what that's about too. Yeah. So so the Life Entrepreneurs Project is another multi-year project 
that I co-authored, in this case with Christopher Gergen, who is a really dynamic social entrepreneur and a friend of mine, former colleague at that startup uh, that you mentioned earlier. And so we had this observation that we had a bunch of questions in our life in kind of a transition of kind of, who am I? You know, why am I here? Where am I going in life? You know, what should I do with the rest of my life? Um, and we noticed that we, you know, this was sort of early in our career. And we noticed that a lot of our friends and family and colleagues were also wrestling with these questions. And then people at midlife come back to this question, people in sort of the retirement zone. So these questions never go away. And so the life entrepreneurs piece is really about how do I integrate my life and work with purpose and passion? So it's not about being a lifelong entrepreneur. It's about entrepreneuring our lives, our whole lives, work, family, life, education, fun, play, all these things, so that they're integrated and, and that they're a whole. And I, you know, I find a lot of people are compartmentalizing these things, or a lot of people are so focused on one that they drop the other balls in ways that they really come to regret. And what we really want is the whole, the whole package. How can we thrive in all of our chosen endeavors? And, and, and so the entrepreneur piece is an entrepreneur has ownership. They take agencies. I am responsible, right? And then they innovate and it's an adventure and they have vision and they, you know, they're really resourceful. And so you, you put it together. So for that book, we interviewed 55 people around the world who most of whom are business entrepreneurs or social entrepreneurs. And some of them, you know, you know, like Starbucks or Cliff Bar, or, you know, these kinds of things. But they integrate their life and work in ways that are really personal according to their values and, and what they want, and their vision of the good life, as we talk about. And so this is something I'm on the quest to be a life entrepreneur. I'm, you know, I'm a parent with young kids and, you know, working, starting a business, moved back from Europe last year. And, you know, we're all going through these challenges and how do we, how do we design our lives and our work intentionally as a life entrepreneur? It brings up the idea of intentionality and, and flow, right? So when you're myopic on that, that vision, the purpose, and you're getting rid of all the noise that's out there, and I know you've also written about this, what is an organization that's in flow look like? We talk in our society about people being in the flow personally, but can an organization be in the flow? And, and what does that look like? Yeah, um, it can. And so a lot of people don't realize we think of flow and the, the great research from Mihai Csikszentmihalyi at Claremont Graduate University is incredibly interesting studies over decades with him and his colleagues where they um, surveyed and they observed you know, chess masters and jazz musicians and artists and the flow moments. And, you know, flow, just to be clear, is a state of being completely absorbed in an activity. And that's why we have the sense of kind of losing time, right? Because it, you're, it's, and they called it flow because it's, it feels like you're being carried along by a current of water, right? Because you're so, you know, you lose separation from you and the activity. Uh, and you're so sort of in there and there's sort of conditions of flow. So most people, to your point, think about it as an individual thing. They think about Michael Jordan or LeBron or whatever. But it, it, the research found that it can be a group, a team phenomenon, as well as an organizational phenomenon. But it's very, very difficult. And what we found in our research is that most teams and most organizations 
are dysfunctional. They're not clear. They're not coherent. They're not willing to have those crucial conversations where somebody raises their hand and takes the risks and and says, wait a minute, I've got some concerns about this. Can you tell me more about this? And and part of it goes back to um, lack of clarity on purpose, values, vision, as well as the more medium and and short-term things and, you know, and poor communication. And so, and then you end up in a situation where people are actually not aligned and in flow, but working actually cross purposes. And I've seen this in organizations where people are sabotaging each other or undermining, and it's about ego and it's about politics. And I think this is very, very common. And so that the alignment towards flow is a disciplined process of the aligning the long, medium, and short term across the whole enterprise, the departments and the divisions and the teams and the individuals so that it all sort of lines up. And so and we, in our book, we've got a 10-step process for doing that. Um, you know, I don't, there are different models. You know, Patrick Lencioni has kind of a seven-step model that's really excellent. You know, startups might want to use an even simpler model because they're not ready for the 10-step model. You know, it, it doesn't matter so much the model you choose or the framework it matters much more. Do you have a disciplined process to keep checking in, gathering data, making pivots, getting feedback, making adjustments, communicating, and dialing in that alignment? You know, and, and if you do, you can you can achieve flow sometimes. But most people, you know, come nowhere near it. And of course, it begins with you know developing an awareness that something isn't working, that we're off track here, and. And hopefully someone can have their wits about them and they can take a step back and look at, hey, like you said, something's not right here. What do you suggest to leaders where they're suspecting that they're not in flow and that things are, you know, maybe headed for a breakdown in the organization? Yeah. So, you know, one of the critical tasks of a leader, I think, is to really keep your eye on the whole business and the big picture. Uh, We interviewed Billy Shore um, for life entrepreneurs. He's a social entrepreneur behind uh, Share Our Strength, which is an anti-poverty, anti-hunger organization that he and his sister run that's been very innovative and very successful with the business model as a nonprofit. And he says that as leaders, all of the incentives in an organization run towards the short term. It's like putting out a fire, meeting our monthly target, the quarterly report and this thing. And he says, if someone doesn't keep their eye on the horizon, I don't know what the job of a leader is if it's not to sort of be a steward of that vision, that higher purpose over time. And obviously, you need to balance the short term uh, and the long term. And so Ron Heifetz at Harvard University is a great leadership guru. And he's got this metaphor for leaders that to me has been very helpful. He says, you have to be able to get on the balcony as a leader and observe what's happening. And he says, often we're in the dance, we're on the dance floor and you're having a meeting and there's egos engaging and there's pressure and there's kind of, you know, kind of tension around stuff. And you have to, of course, engage in that during the meeting, you're probably facilitating the meeting, but you also have to have this meta skill to, while you're in the meeting to rise up to the balcony and observe what's happening here. Why is this person getting upset? What's going on? Is there a root cause? Why do we keep having this breakdown? You know, and, and to be able to observe it while you're in the dance. 
And so, and that's a meta skill. We've got to lead ourselves. We need to have renewal practices where we keep, we get good sleep and, you know, we have perspective. We're dialed into a higher purpose. You know, we move our bodies. Uh, we are integrated people who, you know, have you know, commitments to our family or in our community, these kinds of things. Um, but it's, it's, it's about, um, you know, that perspective uh, so that you don't lose sight of the quest, right? And, and seeing the potential in the people around you. So we get pulled into that short-term mindset and, and it's easy to get sucked into that, right? Uh, short-term games, like even eating food or drinking something or going on social media versus doing your work, there's risk rewards that happen neurochemically all the time. Um, any tips or suggestions to help people kind of interrupt that pattern to go back into that meta state, the bigger picture and look for the pattern rather than getting sucked into the, the old patterns that they've had? Yeah, uh, lots of things that we can do. And so one is to calendarize reflection. You know, we can let our, we can be unintentional and lose our agency by the email inbox and the series of meetings, you know, and, and then you're just reacting, right? But, but a leader's got to step up their game and say, I need to preserve time to think, time to reflect, right? Uh, And so that can be every week, you can calendarize it, but then you also need like a monthly check-in, a quarterly thing, you know, the annual thing. You need to build it into the rhythm because otherwise it, it gets lost. I think mentors and coaches are really important to that, you know, to this because you know sometimes it's it can feel lonely or it can feel hopeless. And so having an objective person who doesn't have you know a horse in the race. And they just have your best interest in mind. They can view it objectively. They, they can ask you tough questions. And then doing what we talked about earlier, which is building this culture of character and of stewardship, where it's not about the leader being the steward of the quest to be excellent, ethical, enduring, and just fighting for the purpose, values, and vision. It's about unleashing everybody in the organization to lead and to innovate and to own the purpose, values, and the vision. And when you do that, it changes everything. And so the leader doesn't have to be the only one that Billy Shore was talking about to look to the horizon. Everybody's going to say, I've got my job description, which is, you know, I'm doing, you know, I'm doing, um, you know, IT and I'm building firewalls or, you know, I'm working on the servers or the, you know, the, the landing pages or I'm doing, you know, I'm doing HR. So everybody's got their job, but they've also got a second job, which is I am a steward of our purpose, values and vision. And I am responsible too for asking questions about the ethics, you know, the excellent and the, and the enduring. And so then you build it into the conversations, you build it into the meetings, you build it into the workflow, where everybody has that ownership of it in the agency. So, so again, get over yourself as a leader. It can't be you solving it and you know, being the one who heroically fixes it or you know, comes up with the vision. It's about, you know, unleashing the potential around you. Uh, and that's very powerful. People want to go work for places that, you know, that where you know, people can be that invested and have that much ownership to, to innovate and to do great work. So shifting to that identity that I am the steward of the organizational purpose, values, and mission, it's not just the leaders and executive team that have to have that inside. It sounds like everyone. Do you think that that's some of the key to success for like some of the great customer service leaders in the world? Like, Disney, Marriott, and companies like that—is that what they're doing? Is like everyone is embodying these concepts? 
I think that's a really big part of it. I think often with leadership, we talk about delegation. I'm going to delegate authority to you on this project within a certain budget. We say, that's fine. That's a step in the right direction, but it's not nearly enough. And so then people say, well, let's go to empowering people. And so I'm empowered on a project. We say, well, that's great. People want to have power. The problem with those is you can disempower and you can undelegate. And so we prefer to take it even further, which is back to that sort of unleash, right? Which is like, if you've done a good job on the front end of hiring people with character, with emotional intelligence, with courage, with, you know, who are fiercely excited about growing and development, as well as the head skills, you can unleash them and then you can trust them. Obviously, sometimes people make mistakes and then you, you know, and then you sort of, you know, come back and you, you work on it. But I think um, there's a lot of great examples where instead of having this overlay of a lack of trust and kind of regulation and policies where people feel like cogs in a machine, like, my God, I, you know, I'm a grown person. Like I can, I can make a judgment call if it's the reverse and, and the leaders say, we trust you. You know, you got this. That's why we brought you in. Just go, go, go and make good judgment calls, you know, and come back and we'll talk about it if we have problems. People love that. And then they're going to innovate because they're the ones who are dialed in to the customer, you know, call center and the, the real problems or their area if they're, you know, doing the operational efficiency thing. They're the ones who have the knowledge about what the real issues are, the people. And, and so um, it can be very, very powerful um, for people as, as a motivating experience, as uh, an employee value proposition, as well as the performance. I mean, you add that up, it's, it's, it's a multiplier. I'm so glad you brought up um, employee value proposition because it really is a, a buzzword these days that's, that's really popular because the world is changing and people are really demanding a culture that is a work-life integration, like you mentioned, that's ESG, you know, environmental, social, and governance is changing too. All the way back to your initial conversation, which I agree, when I learned in business school, it was the purpose of a company is to maximize stockholder value. And it's just not true anymore. I think people don't want to be a part of that. Is there a difference? And, and obviously, I can imagine that startups are changing faster than maybe some of the more uh, established companies that are out there. Is there a difference from a leadership perspective? I know you've had experience in, in working with and being a part of both. Is there a difference in leadership between the startup mentality and a more established firm? Uh, yes, there is. And, you know, the startup, the biggest startup experience I've had, and I've had several, was a scale up, which was an online education venture that we built from scratch. We were able to raise a lot of money and uh, become the market leader in a short period of time. And in four years, scale up from, you know, five people to hundreds of employees, $65 million in sales on our way to an IPO. And, and, and then it went on to become a billion dollar company after I left has gone international. And, but we almost ran out of cash a couple of times. We made some huge mistakes on that sort of roller coaster. And so you know, the startup context is very different from a traditional you know, corporate or whatnot. I like to think of four things. The time pressure is really intense. They're resource constrained. You don't have you know, policies and procedures and a lot of people and capital typically. There's a lot of uncertainty you have kind of like, what's going to work? There's no field manual for your business model or your product launch. And they tend to be very chaotic because you, know, you haven't had the time you know, to kind of put it all together. 
you know, at the beginning, it, it takes time. And so that's a very, it's one of the most challenging leadership contexts you can have along with turnarounds. And so given that, I think leaders need to be really nimble. And so I really like the whole lean startup methodology, which is, it's not just for startups, by the way, it's very much an innovation methodology that's it's designed for big companies and governments too, but it, but it comes out of startup experience. And it's really about, as a startup, cash is king, right? You run out of cash, you're dead. And that's it's a very high risk. And the old model was, I've got an idea, I'm going to write a business plan, I'm going to launch it, and then I fail you know, 90% of the time. And Lean Startup is about nobody's that smart to be able to guess with all the variables of the market. And so what you have to do is you have to do these minimum viable product, you know, MVP launches, pilots, prototypes, and gather feedback. And so what Lean Startup is, is really about learning. It's about the learn startup is how do you go through a feedback loop and quickly learn about what will actually get traction in the marketplace and not what, what you think. And so that's one of the key things where you have to build an organization that's really good at testing, experimenting, and learning. The other classic leadership mistake in startup land is that people don't pay attention to building the culture. You know, there's so many challenges going on with cash and product launch and you know whatever PR. There's so many fires that you neglect the culture of the venture. And then you end up often with a mediocre or bad or toxic culture. And it ends up killing you in the long term. And so then that's why you know there's a lot of uh, there's a metaphor of if you're coding something, you have technical debt. It's all the compromises that you make in your code. Just you're going to go fix it later. And the same concept from Steve Blank says you have organizational debt or culture debt. It's all the little compromises or the things that you neglected because you were so focused on putting out fires that later turn out to be a disaster. And, and you see you know, people are leaving in droves or there's a revolt against your new compensation policy because you didn't take the time to invest in the people. And you know what? The people are always the most important thing. You know, the work is through the people, as Heifetz said. And so we can never be in a situation where we're focusing so much on strategy or product or business model that we're neglecting the people. The people are the ones who do all of that. You know, it's, it's all through them. So you know, never uh, neglect the people, the relationships, the conversations. You know, I wanted to ask about conversations because clearly, you know, as a consultant, author, speaker, traveling around the world and, and speaking to people virtually like this, you've had a lot of conversations with people from all walks of life. What has been, you know, one of the more impactful or profound conversations that you've had either personally, or professionally that's impacted you and where you are today? Yeah. Um, so for me, I go back to my uh, college years and a, uh, a college uh, philosophy professor who asked, how has the world changed? And um, in a way, and got us thinking about the last 50 years, the last 100 years. And we had a conversation about it where he got so intense. He cared so much about pulling us into this conversation that it sort of gave me permission to, to care too and, and for a light to switch on and for me to really apply myself on these questions. And that led me to the, the questions about, yeah, you know, I, I took a, a course called Theories of the Good Life, 
you know, what does it mean to live a good life? And, you know, and that took me into that land of like, well, what does it mean to live a good life? And what have other people said? And, and what do I think? And I always keep coming back to that because I think as leaders, we often get stuck in this sort of our identity is wrapped up in leading our team or our organization and whatnot. And that's really hard, as you well know. Uh, but the, the precursor to that, the foundation to that is I need to lead myself first. And if I don't do that well, I'm not going to be able to do this other thing sustainably over time. And people are going to see that they're sort of rotten at the core or there's some fundamental character things or way out of balance or you know, frenetic. And so what I'm focused on is you know, helping people lead themselves and so they can lead others, and then we can lead change in the world, you know, with you know, with our transformation of the organization or more social impact and sustainability, as well as high performance. And all of those things need to align. You, you can't do the, just the middle one without this one, and you're never going to get here to the third one without, you know. And so we need to be able to do all of them. And that's that's what the world needs of us now. There's so many big challenges, you know, in our marketplaces and in the world they're great opportunities but you know this is this is what the world needs what a great question from your philosophy professor and to to guide you into your your philosophy right now in in life leading yourself leading others and and leading change you know greg i want to thank you so much for for being here what is the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you and find out more uh and and learn from you as well yeah so well thanks for asking that there's a there are a few ways and so I've got a website, uh, gregvanerick.com. And so it's Greg with two G's and then V-A-N-O-U-R-E-K.com. And um, with our Triple Crown Leadership book, we also have a, a website for that, which is triplecrownleadership.com. And on both of those websites, we have a ton of free resources for leaders you know, relating to leading self, leading others, entrepreneurship, social impact, conscious capitalism, these kinds of things. Um, and, and then I'm also, um, you know, I've got a YouTube page, but I'm also active on Twitter. And I think there's a lot of value that I see. I really learn a lot from people on Twitter with conversations. And so at G Vanerick uh, on Twitter. So those are good places to start. Excellent. I'll make sure I have all those links in the show notes as well. And I want to thank you again for being here. Thanks so much. Thank you, John. Cheers. And for all of you listening and watching, until next time, develop yourself, empower others, and lead by example. Thanks for listening to Key Conversations for Leaders with your host, John Ryan. If you enjoyed the show, please let us know. Give us a rating or write a review. And if you'd like to connect with me and other like-minded leaders, I invite you to join our brand new Facebook group called Develop, Empower, and Lead, where I deliver free live training every week. If you go to developempowerlead.com, it will redirect you right there. Hope to see you there soon.